The following audio is from First Hamilton Christian Reformed Church, where our vision is to be transformed by the gospel so that we can participate with God in his work of renewing all things in Christ. For more information about First Hamilton, visit www.firsthamilton.ca. Let's pray. Father, as we opened up your word and to begin to preach a message that you placed on my heart this week. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing unto you. And may we, through hearing this, bear much fruit and uh, remain in you. In Christ we pray. Amen. Over the past few years, there's been a growing number of podcasts and books written to help us to be fruit-bearing people. Uh, in our increasingly distracted and digital world, there's applications that we put on our smartphones, our tablets, our computers that help us to keep focused on our work. Apps like Freedom, which is, uh, you know, you can set a timer and it blocks websites and apps on your computer or phone for a period of time. Or Flow, that gives a simple focus timer to allow you to have some parameters around the time that you focus for. Or uh, Todoist, which is a, a uh, to-do list that allows you to keep all of the actions, next actions in one place. All of these things and others help us to get that math homework done, right? The, or finish the part of our strategic plan or business meeting or compose that massive Costco shopping list that seems like a, a long enough to, to feed an army. I've, I've learned, I have a two and a half year old, I've learned why Costco shopping carts are so big. I can't even imagine having teenagers in the house. It must be madness. All of this is uh, what, what psychologists and neuroscientists, all of these, these apps and podcasts and books to help us focus and, and do work, they're, they're beginning to talk about the state of mind that we get into when we are focused and productive. And they call it the flow state. And I've got an image, Ian, if you can pull that up for me. Flow state is right up there. And it's, this is a very simple chart that I found online. And um, full disclaimer, some neuroscientists uh, completely disagree with this. But that's okay. We're going to run with it. Flow state is the space that we inhabit where there is an appropriate amount of challenge. Okay? As well as an appropriate amount of skill that we have. So the challenge would be the task to do. So the math homework or the job or the shopping list or something that, that we're doing um, that, that causes, that asks us to, to do something. Then the skill side of it is the actual skill that we have to get the job done. Do we have what it takes? So the, the challenge, uh, you know, we get out of whack sometimes though. And when, when we have too much challenge, when we're when the job seems too big, it causes stress. That's the, I can't do this, or this is so big, I can't even start to think about how I can, how I can accomplish this. That's that feeling. But then on the flip side, too much skill and not enough challenge, sleep feeling. And flow channel, or flow state, is the perfect in-between, and it feels really good. And, and some of us maybe know how to get there or have experienced this before. 
right? It's where you're totally engaged in the task at hand. It's asking a lot of you, but you're able to pour your whole skill into it. This is a good place to be. But it's interesting, as researchers are studying people and focus time and that, they've, they've realized that we can't live in this flow channel forever. MIT researcher and podcaster Cal Newport places the number about three to four hours for highly productive people. That's how long we can stay in there without being tired and burned out by the end of the day. It's about three to four hours. And so um, if you're a high school student listening to this and your physics or, or English teacher assigns you five hours of focused homework, you can totally use this as ammunition. The reason I bring all this up is because of the sermon last week. We read from 1 John, a passage that many of us felt the challenge of love in action. I said repeatedly last week that line, this is how we know what love is. Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. When we think about it, when that sinks in, that's a challenge. And that's a hard teaching. And it's one that when we really think about it and reflect on it and experience the gravitas of Jesus' teaching, it can create stress. Jesus is asking a lot of us. Being a follower of Jesus literally means that we must be ready to sacrifice of ourselves so deep that it could mean that we lay our very lives down for our brothers and our sisters. He's not just talking about money or livelihood or time. A great example of this is stories from the early Christians in pandemics. Right? Coronavirus is not the first pandemic. And Christians have been responding to pandemics ever since the church began. In ancient Roman times, there were a few plagues that struck the empire. And this is before social distancing and masks that maybe make, make it a little bit— uh, it just it creates a different sort of uh, response that we can have as Christians— uh, that's actually helpful. But before all of that, when a, when a pandemic hit, when a plague hit, the response of the people was just to run, to get out of the city and, and to try not to get sick. And so the frontline workers, the ones who were responding to all of this, was the Christians. And they caught the eye of the pagans and the emperors, they couldn't help but see that when everyone else was running, it was actually the Christians that stayed. The Christians that cared for the people who were abandoned and dying. It was the Christians that laid down their lives for their brothers and sisters in need. This is intense. And some of us you know, when we feel that challenge, like, you know, on that, on that graph that we just— when the, when the challenge, the job at hand, causes that stress, we can be tempted to just lower the temperature on Jesus, explain it away, or lean on his grace. It's, it's not that he literally meant that we would lay down our lives. For, you know, that, that was something that he, he was just saying, you know, be, be very um, willing to give or— um, but we can't. On top of this, even if we try to turn down the temperature on Jesus by responding to his challenge and doing it, 
loving in action, pouring out our lives for each other, love, 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 we will eventually burn out, run out of gas. Even in First Hamilton's history, I've heard some of you share of the exhaustion and the, the, the burnout that came from a season of intentional and oftentimes beautiful and fruitful love in action in and around this community, around this church. But the question is, what pace is sustainable? What is that flow state for Christians where there is a, a, the challenge of Jesus' teaching— and the ability for us to live into that with joy is, is, is leveling out that we can remain in a, in a state that fully engages us. At the same time, not burning ourselves out and being able to rest. How can we do this? The teaching of Jesus as the true vine suggests that there is a way for Christians— to live into this flow state. This doesn't just apply to loving in action either. This helps us to live with those who are struggling with anxiety or stress or worry in their lives. When life feels too big, Jesus in this passage offers us the way to be at peace despite the things that are happening around us. And so if we desire to follow Jesus today, or even if we're just curious, if, if you're joining us and you're just curious about what Jesus has to say to modern people, I, I believe that this teaching on Jesus as the true vine and his, his invitation to remain in him to bear fruit is the most important teaching for our busy, fast-paced, burned-out culture that we live in. In this little passage, Jesus teaches us the balance of the Christian life and how to live it. Because Jesus does want us to live flourishing lives. Remember, he says, you know, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. It's not supposed to be something that stresses us to the max and burns us out. He wants us to come to him and experience joy and peace in our lives. But how can we get there? So we'll talk about what Today, we'll, I'll talk about what Jesus means by remaining or abiding or staying in him. But first, I want to talk about the fruit. Over the centuries, there's been debate about what the fruit is that Jesus is talking about. Is he talking about Christian character? Is he talking about being obedient to him and just doing what he says? Or is he talking about making new disciples? What is the fruit? And I was reading a helpful book this week where the author pointed out to us that to isolate the fruit to one single aspect of our lives is to miss the point, and it's not helpful. He puts it like this. He says, the fruit in the vine imagery represents everything that is a product of prayer in Jesus' name, including obedience to Jesus' commands, including experiencing Jesus' joy, including loving one another, including witnessing to the world. And so what this author is saying is that it is our entire lives that are fruit, not just one single aspect. It's not just the outward love. It is our whole character, our whole 
response to Jesus. It is our ability to, to, to experience the joy of Jesus. All of this is fruit. So this definitely does mean the ways that we care for the poor or do justice or love mercy or embody a generous spirit, but it also talks towards our attitudes towards others. Do we complain? Are we a complaining person? Do we encourage others? Talking to our loved ones, how do we do that? Are we building up? Are we tearing down? How do we address sin in our lives? Do we kill it or do we put up with it? Do we let God search our hearts and know us and draw out the sin in us? That's fruit. That is the fruit that God calls us to bear. The Apostle Paul riffs on this teaching, I believe, and gets specific about the characteristics of the fruits. Right? We know this passage, the fruit of the Spirit. And to be clear, Paul is not saying that this is the fruits of the Spirit. We do not pick and choose which ones we want to grow in and ignore the others. This is a whole holistic picture of what the Holy Spirit causes in us. The fruit of the Spirit, as Paul says, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. All of these things impact all of our lives. It's fruit. It's the fruit that Jesus says we will produce when we remain in him. And so let's go back to the image that I shared at the beginning. If we think about producing fruit like this, it will probably add stress to our lives. I've got to do this. I've got to now on top of the, the Costco shopping list and the, the business plan and all of that, I have to think about how I'm loving and joyful and peaceful and patient and kind and good and, and gentle and having self-control. But remember, this is not the fruit of Deb or the fruit of Jules. This is the fruit of the Spirit that is at work in you. We do not grow this fruit on our own. That's a recipe for exhaustion. As the author David Fitch, talk, Fitch talks about, he says, in the West we often exhaust ourselves because we don't know how to abide or stay or remain in Christ that he may bear fruit in us. Instead, what we do is we take, he says this, quote, I, we are prone to taking matters into our own hands and we become exhausted as Christians. Although we may accomplish many good works of mercy, in the end, we will not bring Christ's kingdom. And I find that quote so interesting because he says, we may actually accomplish works of mercy, but Christ's kingdom won't be advanced because it will just be a one-sided thing. It won't be bringing our whole selves into God's hands. Too often we hear the words, bear fruit, and we ignore the command, remain in me. Like an athlete who leaves it all on the court and forgets about the recovery, we often leave it all in outward action and forget about enjoying Christ and being with him and letting everything flow from that relationship, that inner relationship that he invites us into. But he's clear. In this passage, he is clear. What is the bedrock? What is the foundation for our lives in him? It is to remain in me as I am in you. Apart from me, you can do nothing. 
The other ways to translate this verb, remain, you know, other translations would say abide in me as I am in you. Uh, the original Greek, the, the, the word abide, uh, meno, is, is also translated in other areas as reside or live or take lodging. It's a, it's a, it's a, it, you know, if you think about when you, when you go into a home and you take off your coat and you make yourself at home, that's what it means to remain, to abide, to stay and so how do we begin to learn how to do this as, as the foundation for our Christian lives? In Christ. There's two helpful ways to think about remaining, I think. Remaining in Christ. Because it is an action. It is an intentional action that we must do. And I want to compare it to riding a bicycle. When we ride a bicycle, there's two main movements. And in, in abiding in Christ, there's two main movements. You know, the pedaling, right? Up and down, up and down, up and down, constantly. That's, you're just going around, right? Each, each leg is going around the pedals. And it's consistent. And same with abiding or remaining in Christ. It, it takes two things constantly at work in our lives. And when we get ourselves out of whack of these two things, or we stop doing them, we will, um, we will lose our, our rest and we'll begin to work for our salvation or turn down the temperature on Jesus' teaching. And so what are these two things that we must learn to do as Christians? The first motion is faith. To remain in Christ, we have to learn to trust him. Because this is, this is the central claim of the gospel that Jesus Christ has overcome the world. That it's done. It's in the past. We just celebrated Easter and these passages in the lectionary are coming from the, the season of Easter. And they're all living out of the resurrection. And it's so interesting that the resurrection was the first day of the week, not the last Right? And so as Christians, we gather. Sunday, we often think of, I made it to the finish line. But a different way of thinking about that is that this is the beginning of our week. We begin from a place of rest. The game is won on a buzzer beater. Our lives are already saved. And that gives us permission to rest in Christ and what he has done. As I said last week, you know, as Christians, we love not for approval, but from approval. And it turns out that this truth is not only foundational for loving in action, but also to remaining in Christ. We, we have to learn to trust and have faith that we have the love and approval of God. The only way to work yourself into the ground as a Christian is to do it on your own. The way to avoid that is to be sure and certain that you are safe with God and that he's not disappointed with you regardless of your life. Our lives are now hidden in Christ, as Paul says, like a lunar eclipse, right? When God looks at you, he, he sees Christ and his righteousness. And that means that there's nothing we can say or do that disqualifies us from the grace that God offers us in Christ. It's done. We're loved. We're accepted. 
this is foundational for remaining in Christ, is knowing, not just in our heads, but in our hearts, that he loves us and wants to be with us and invites us to be covered by his grace. When I talk to people as a pastor, oftentimes the struggle with trust is not a head thing. In the Reformed tradition, we're good at knowing and conceptualizing these things. The struggle is to bring it from the head and get it into our hearts. I really think the only way that we can do this is not by learning more, but by praying more. It's a spirit thing that moves these things from our heads to our hearts. Sure, it takes reading the scriptures over and over again. As Luther said, that we have to like bang ourselves over the head with this justification by faith thing because we constantly forget. But it's through prayer and meditation that these truths in scripture sink down into our hearts. Timothy Keller talks about in his book on prayer, he says, if there's a pill that you can take that would save you forever, you're, you're dying of a disease and you can take one pill that'll save you, would you do that every single day or would you forget about it? No, you would do it every day. And yet prayer in the Bible is talked about as this. It is our lifeline and we often forget and neglect it. We must be in prayer. Abiding in Christ takes faith that he's done it. That's the upstroke. But what about the downstroke of the pedal? Down is repentance. Repentance. Why repentance? Because repentance is actually an intentional movement towards God. We often do repentance wrong in the church. We often, you know, and I'm just as, as guilty of doing this, we often think about repentance as confession, as letting God search our hearts and confessing the things that we've done wrong, or feeling sorry for the bad things that we've done, or promising to do better. But repentance is not that. When you translate the Greek word repentance, it's a physical turning around. It's, it's an action that we do to move away from something and towards something else. If you think of the, uh, the parable of the prodigal son, when the, son, the, the prodigal son has this moment when he realizes what he's done. You know, he's in the lowest of the low, and he thinks to himself, I've screwed up. And he makes an intentional movement to turn his life and to go back to his father. That's repentance. Repentance isn't just feeling sorry for your sins. It's doing something about it. It's moving towards God. As Christians, we do have to be searching our hearts and testing our thoughts and turning ourselves back to God because without Christ, without being and obeying his commands, we will always try to do it on our own. And according to, to Jesus in this, if we do it on our own, we will wither. Instead, we must run towards him and begin to obey more closely what he says we should be doing with our lives. C.S. Lewis has a great point about this. And he's talking about hell, but it applies to this passage so well. 
C.S. Lewis says that when we sin, it's, it often starts small and almost invisible. And we, so much so that we almost, if we apply it to this passage, so much so that we almost don't realize that we are not remaining in Christ and that we are working on our own strength. He, he likens this to, it starts with a grumbling, a grumbling spirit or a complaining spirit. And we could expand that to think that our sin often starts small in like the small little lie or the, the cheating the system in a little justifiable way or manipulating somebody's words for our favor. favor. And what Lewis says, if, if we don't pay attention to these things, if we're not letting God search our hearts and know us and call out our sin— then these things will grow in us and we will become hell in ourselves before long. That cheating the system will continue to grow. That manipulating other people's words will continue to grow and it will draw us away from God unless it is nipped in the bud. Repentance is nipping our sin in the bud and turning ourselves towards God. And it's a grace. It's a grace. It drives us back into the arms of Jesus, who is the good father in that prodigal son parable, who when we come towards him, he runs towards us, and he meets us in his grace. These two movements, trust that God, God's love and approval are a sure bet. And repentance, that the, the work of, of confession, but not just confession, but turning towards God and obeying him more fully, drive us deeper into remaining in him for all of life. This is the bicycle of the Christian life. This is what we do constantly, and this is what causes us to bear fruit. Because when we bear fruit in the way that Jesus talks about it, it is letting his life come to life in us. And this is the meal that's in front of us. It's for the people gathered here or online, the body of Christ that is doing this life, destination. We're riding on our bicycles and we're being led by him, trusting him and repenting. But we're moving forward and we're being nourished along the way by the bread and the cup. And not only nourished, right, but we're also, we're also encouraged by this and we're fed by this and, and we, we are sent by this meal. What if we began every single day in this way? What if we woke up and spent three seconds recognizing Christ in our midst, that we can trust him and stop striving on our own, and that we can run to him and let him lead us how would that prioritize our balance? 
keep us from being burned out and give us a sense of rest and peace. It's not on us to save the world. It's done. It is finished. Let's join Christ in what he is doing in us and in our world. Let's pray. Father, as we come to the table in a few moments, we recognize that this is a work of grace that you extend to us, that this meal is to nourish us and strengthen us in our journey. Father, as we prepare our hearts for this table in the coming uh, song, let us, uh, let us repent of everything that we must repent of. Father, would you search our hearts and know us, test our thoughts, and see if there is any offensive way in us. Father, would we also run toward you to seek you. Father, also, let us trust that this table is true. Help us to know that when we take this bread and eat it, and when we take this cup and drink it, that this is, this is the means of grace. This is grace that you are meeting us with. Let this sink down from our head into our hearts, that we may feast together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.